you to open up this morning to the book of Judges. Uh, The book of Judges in the Old Testament. And this morning I want to ask that you would open up to Judges uh, chapter 17. Uh, Judges chapter 17. Uh, If you want to use one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you, you'll find this passage on page 216 in uh, those Bibles. This morning we're taking a uh, very brief hiatus from our study of the Ten Plagues of Egypt. Uh, Many of our members uh, being out of town, uh, I did have some of them approach me, and I was grateful that they seemed to be enjoying our study of the plagues, and they said, would you please wait till the evening service so that we can be back, and so we're, we're going to do that, and so that's why we're taking this brief break So tonight, we will pick back up with the fifth plague, uh, which I'm calling the plague of uh, dead meat. So as I thought about what we might study this morning, uh, I couldn't help but reflect on what seems to be happening in the culture around us. Um, I don't have to tell you that our society has changed rapidly in just the past few years and indeed in just the past few months. People's ideas are changing, people's ways of thinking are changing, people's convictions are changing. And in large part, the momentum is not moving towards faith in God or towards biblical truth, but away from these things. Our society seems to be moving further into moral confusion The moral standards of the past are being knocked over one after another like pins on a bowling lane or better like a game of Jenga where we see different moral standards being removed from the structure of our society. And the question is, how long will it stand? An example of that would be the fall of the Roman Empire as we saw moral standards dissipate in that empire until it fell. Now, of course, there are many in our culture who would say that I'm very wrong about my assessment. Uh, Some would say, no, Justin, America isn't losing her moral standards. We're just replacing outdated, old-fashioned standards with newer and better ones. So, for example, in this new American society, tolerance is the new morality. Acceptance of others unconditionally is said to be the new principle. Uh, The new moral no-nos are discrimination and judgmentalism. The problem is these new standards will not hold. When the governor of Indiana backed down just a few weeks ago in the face of public pressure and declared that his state would not practice any form of discrimination, he was saying something utterly ridiculous. Discrimination is something that we all practice at various times. There are times when not discriminating is to be foolish or even immoral. Do we not discriminate in who we allow our children to be left alone with? Do we not discriminate in who we will allow into this pulpit to preach? 
Do we not discriminate in who we allow to even run for public office as a country? We do. Sometimes discrimination is wrong and immoral. And sometimes discrimination is absolutely right and necessary. The same goes for tolerance, this new buzzword, tolerance. There is a time for tolerance. And there is a time for intolerance. It is not good or right or loving to tolerate someone who is actively doing harm to other people? Would any of us say that we should have tolerated Hitler and his views and beliefs and actions? So you see, the problem with the new moral standards in our society is that they are hypocritical. They are called upon at random times, but not called upon at other times. So, for example, our culture says we should not discriminate, and therefore we must affirm gay marriage. But then we're continuing to discriminate against polygamists. So if we're going to be true to our new morals, we must also affirm polygamist marriage. A number of homosexuals have come out recently saying, that the tax code in our land favors people who are married. And there are many homosexuals who don't want to be married. They see marriage as an outdated institution, a, a relic of the past, and they believe that because they have that belief, the tax code is punishing them, and they and their partners are being treated as second class citizens. And therefore, as one recent editorial opined, The only way to be truly tolerant and non-discriminating in our society is that all traces of marriage must be removed from the legal system and the tax code of our land. In the end, where all of this seems to be leading is that the only practice that will be called evil in our land is to call someone else's beliefs or practices evil. This will be the one thing not allowed to dare say that someone else is in the wrong. In the new morality, everyone must be allowed to make whatever choices they choose, and we must celebrate their right to do so. There is no right and wrong, and to say so is to be wrong. That's the moral confusion of our culture. Now, as we see this happening, it's unfolding before our eyes day after day, week after week. The temptation is to assume that this is brand new. This this is a new phenomenon in the history of the world. But of course it isn't, right? There is nothing new under the sun. History repeats itself again and again. In fact, the United States is simply catching up to where parts of Western Europe and Australia have been for decades. Indeed, when we look at the cultures of the past, we see that there have been many times in history, many societies, where moral confusion and relativism ruled the day. There have been many moments in many places on this earth where the moral standards were suppressed, The moral standards of God were were set aside or opposed, and people chose to follow their own hearts, to create their own moral compasses, to live according to their own preferences. 
And even God's people, Israel, lived in seasons in this way. And perhaps there is no greater example of that in the history of Israel than the book of Judges. Indeed, when you read the book of Judges, there are times when you cannot help but look up from the page and say, this seems a whole lot like what is happening in our country today. And so my goal this morning is to do something I never do, which is rather than taking one little verse or one little passage, I want to take the whole book of Judges and I want to say, what are some lessons from the book of Judges for our country and our lives today? Now, obviously, we cannot take the time to read the whole book of Judges together this morning. So I would encourage you to do that sometime soon. But just to give you an example of the moral craziness that existed at that time, look with me at Judges 17. Judges 17, and we're going to read just the first six verses. This will give you the sense of the moral confusion that's in this book. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what do we see in that one paragraph alone? I am suggesting that we see utter moral confusion. At first, it sounds like a wonderful testimony. Here we have a son who has stolen from his own mother. But he is coming to his mother and confessing his sin and bringing his mother back the money that he stole. In response, his mother blesses her son by the divine name of God, Yahweh. She even dedicates the money that was taken from her to the service of Yahweh. What a, what a wonderful story. Except, of course, when you look closer, it isn't wonderful at all. While this family is still using the name Yahweh, Jehovah, and while they consider themselves to be faithful followers of God, look at what this story contains. It begins with the son breaking at least two of the Ten Commandments. He dishonors his mother and steals from her. The mother, rather than loving her enemies or praying for the person who stole from her, she pronounces a curse upon them. It was this curse that proceeds and seems to motivate her son to fess up. In other words, we're not told that the son was repentant or that he grieved over his sin. Rather, we're told that he heard his mother pray for God to curse whoever stole her money and likely out of the fear of God's curse, he fessed up. 
Then, though the mother declares that she is consecrating the money to the service of the Lord, she doesn't give the money to the priest of the Lord. She gives the money back to her son. It's like declaring that you've set aside money for God, and then rather than giving it to your church or to support a missionary, you give it to your child. What's more, though 1,100 shekels of silver were stolen, returned, and consecrated to God, we only see 200 shekels being used for religious purposes. We're never told what happened to the other 900 shekels of silver. But what they did with the 200 was bad enough. In the name of God, they went to a silversmith and used the money to have an idol made, breaking the second commandment. This idol was then brought into the son's house. Then the son made himself a shrine as well as other religious items to be used in the service of this idol. Basically, the son begins to turn his home into a temple devoted to this image. He even goes so far as to design priestly clothes and then to make one of his own sons a priest to serve this image in the temple of their house. All of this is done in the name of God. Mount Hermon, what we have in this passage is God's will being trampled all over the place by folks who claim they are doing what is right. How do we explain this? The last verse tells us these folks were doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes. The laws of God are being ignored. His word, his revelation, his lamp to our feet and light to our path that had been forgotten. People had become their own deciders of what's true and what's good and what's beautiful. You see, the book of Judges as a whole provides for us an account of a period in Israel's history after the conquest of the promised land, but before the inauguration of their first king. So this is after Joshua. This is after Israel has come into Canaan and driven out peoples who were there. But this is before Samuel comes and anoints Saul and later David as king over Israel. Judges records a time when there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 400 years are covered in these 21 chapters. The people of Israel settled firmly into this land that God had given them, and they began to face the daunting task of having to defend their new homeland. Sometimes, They had to face the challenge of reclaiming their homeland after they had just lost it. The book of Judges is full of enemies, the the Philistines in the south, the Canaanites in the north, the Ammonites along the Jordan River, the Moabites and the Midianites in the very heartland of, of Israel. But the greatest enemy of Israel that we see in the book of Judges is Israel herself. Over the centuries, God's people forgot their Lord And they began to adopt for themselves the pagan practices and gods of the people around them. In fact, it seems likely that this account from this very dark period in Israel's history was written as a wake-up call to later generations to remain faithful to the Lord and to His covenant. Uh, In the preface to his excellent commentary on Judges and Ruth, Daniel Block says this about the storyline of Judges. 
He says, flush from the incredible victories over the Canaanites they had won under the leadership of Joshua. The individual tribes should have made quick work of those peoples who remained in the land. But how different was the reality from the dream? Unable or unwilling to keep the memory of God's grace alive, by the time we reach the end of the book of Judges, the Israelites are scarcely distinguishable from the Canaanites whom they were to replace. In fact, seven times in the book of Judges, we find a statement like this. Seven times we read, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Israel had been commanded to come into the promised land and to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan. It was their failure to do so that led to their moral and religious downfall. Though God continually raised up judges to deliver his people from their enemies, his faithfulness to them was met by their unfaithfulness to him, often even by the very judges he had raised up. The depravity of Israel is so great at the end of the book of Judges that the holy war which Israel was to go and wage against the remaining Canaanites, they're instead waging against one of their own tribes. How does Israel manage to sink so low in the book of Judges? There were several factors. First, there was Joshua's failure to choose a successor. Before Moses had died, he had worked hard to make sure that Joshua was ready to step into his place. Moses had worked hard to prepare Joshua to lead and worked hard to prepare the people to follow Joshua. But Joshua failed to pave the way for leadership after he died. Once he was gone, there was no leader in Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel were now spread throughout the promised land and there was no unifying voice to call them into steadfast obedience to God. There was a lack of leadership in the land. Second, there was the failure to find a permanent dwelling for the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, when Israel was traveling through the wilderness, you had three camps here and three camps here and three camps here and three camps here. And what was at the very center of the Israelite camp? It was the special presence of God in the tabernacle. But when they come to the promised land, God is taken out of the center of the nation. Um, It's almost as if the people of Israel kind of forgot about the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant. Their concern for keeping their covenant with God seems to have just gone out the window. The tabernacle was placed at Shiloh. Most of the nation pays almost no attention to it. Because Israel had not completed its mission of wiping out these foreign enemies, most of Israel would have to travel through enemy territory just to go worship at the tabernacle if they wanted to. And then third... The establishment of local places of worship often included adopting nearby altars and shrines that had been associated with pagan gods and sanctifying them for the use of the worship of Yahweh. In other words, uh, the people of Israel would come to these uh, shrines that had been made to Baal, shrines that had been made to Asherah, and they said, well, we're now going to make these shrines to Yahweh. But guess what they did? 
They took the same practices that had been involved in the worship of Baal or the worship of Asherah, and they just Christianized them. That's what we would call it today, right? Um, How easy it is for God's people to bring the ideas and practices of an ungodly culture into the worship of God itself. How easy, and I think this is so evident in our day, where we've simply taken things out of the entertainment industry, Christianized them, and brought them into the churches and the worship of God. For Israelites in the book of Judges, this eventually went so far that they decided that they would worship entirely different gods. Uh, Of particular prominence was the god El, who was somewhat similar to the later Greek god Zeus, and he was considered the head of the pantheon of the Canaanite gods. Even more notable was the god Baal, the storm god, credited with the power of releasing or withholding rain for the crops. It would be really hard for these Israelite farmers not to give in to the temptation to cry out to Baal when their crops weren't growing and when the rain wasn't coming. The powerlessness of these false deities is illustrated by God's stinging reproach of Israel when they called out to him from under Philistine and Ammonite persecution. So this is the nature of things, right? When things are going well, we kind of forget about God, but suddenly we're in a moment of crisis, and what do we do? Oh, God, let's call out to him. So in Judges 10, the people of Israel are in one of those crisis moments, right? The Ammonites are here, the, uh, uh, the Philistines are here, and they're under that persecution, and so they cry out to God, God, save us. And God replies, Judges 10, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen Let them save you in your time of distress. Unlike the gods of Canaan, the Lord, Yahweh, did not allow allegiance to him to be shared with any other deity. To quote Daniel Block again, whereas other ancient Near Eastern divinities tolerated the simultaneous worship of other gods, Yahweh demanded exclusive and total devotion from his subjects. This strict command caused the remnant of faithful Israelites to seem narrow-minded and out of touch with their world. What? You only worship one God? How weird. That was narrow-minded in their their day. That was was strange. The, The truth that there was only one God was rarely accepted and rarely believed. And then finally in our list of what went wrong in the book of Judges, we have to include this. Completely disregarding the commands of Moses in Deuteronomy, the people of Israel did not diligently teach their children the words and the deeds of Yahweh. The people of Israel did not pass down to each generation reverence for God, fear of God, faith in God, love for God. Rather, after Joshua's generation died out, we read in Judges 2 verse 10, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. With each generation, 
being further removed, further removed, further removed from the knowledge of God and his word, the people of Israel became more and more corrupt and immoral. Is this not what is happening in our culture today? There was a time when most people in America had quite a bit of knowledge of the word of God. That time has passed. Most people, if you were to go around and ask people in this day, most people today can't even tell you the Ten Commandments, right? Um, Biblical literacy, knowledge of God, knowledge of who he is, it's being lost. And as each generation goes further and further and further away from the knowledge of God, greater and greater moral confusion and chaos will result. Okay, so what about these men who were called judges, right? That's the name of the book, Judges. So, so who are these men that God raised up um, as judges? It's important to note that in this book, the judges of Israel are not judges in the traditional sense of the word. So I had jury duty a couple of weeks ago, and I was in the courtroom, and you know there was the uh, all stand in honor of the judge, and the judge comes out, and she hit her gavel, and we all seated, right? And she was there to hear the case and to make sure that the law was being properly applied in the case at hand. That is not the kind of judge that the book of Judges has in view. The Hebrew word translated judges refers to a ruler, a governor, or someone who exercises leadership. And in the case of the book of Judges, the judges were persons raised up by the Spirit of God to deliver the people of Israel from an enemy. So if you read the book, you'll notice every one of these guys gets raised up when Israel is under attack from an enemy, and they are to lead the way in rescuing Israel. Most of these judges exercised great faith and might in their capacity as deliverers. But to be honest, most of them showed little moral aptitude as leaders. They were deliverers raised up by God in times of need, but they were seldom good at governing. Also, some of these judges probably reigned simultaneously as they tended to be more regional rather than national. They tended to be more local rather than uh, over a kingdom. Now, the stories of the judges of Israel run in a fairly consistent cycle that is outlined in Judges 2, 18 and 19. And here's how it works. First, the people of Israel forsake God. They forsake God. Second, they are delivered into the hands of their enemies. Third, under the persecution or uh, uh, hostility, they cry out to God for deliverance. Fourth, God raises up a deliverer to rescue them. And fifth, there's a period of peace in the land. And then it starts all over. The people forsake God. They're given over to an enemy. They cry out for a deliverer. God raises up a judge. They're delivered. There's a period of peace. And then the whole cycle starts again and again and again and again until the time you get to Samson and you think, we've seen this over and over and over who were the judges? I'm just going to mention a few. I'm not going to go through all of them. But this will help you get the sense of, of the book. First, there was a man named Othniel. So everybody say Othniel. Othniel. Um, having forsaken God to worship pagan deities, the people of Israel are given over to the Mesopotamians. So for eight years, Israel is under bondage to the Mesopotamians. The 
Israelites cry out to God for a savior, he sends the judge Othniel, and he leads in a military defeat of the Mesopotamians. And after that, there's peace for 40 years. His story receives a whole five verses in the book of Judges. Then there is Ehud. He is one of the most intriguing and macabre stories in the whole book of Judges. It begins with this Moabite king, Eglon, capturing a substantial portion of the Israelite heartland, including the city of Jericho. And Ehud is sent to Eglon to carry the tribute that is required of Israel. But craftily, Ehud has been raised up as a man to set Israel free. He manages to get himself alone with the king, and he kills the king with a dagger. And the description is one of the most graphic and disturbing in the Bible, which is why young boys in Sunday school class, it's why Jonathan's grinning, because he knows it so well, little boys love it. We read, Now Eglon was a very fat man, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed in over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of the belly, and the dung came out. So, fun suppertime reading. Following this incident, Ehud led the tribe of Ephraimites, sorry, the tribe of Ephraim, and defeated the Moabites. And again, there's peace for 80 years. And so this is the way it works, right? There's, there's, there's peace, and then they forsake God, and then they get taken over by an enemy, and they cry out for a deliverer, and God sends a deliverer, and then there's peace. Um, after uh, Ehud comes Deborah and Barak. And at first glance, it does appear that Deborah is the next judge. Uh, the people of God have been given into the hands of a man named Jabin. He's a Canaanite king. The people are crying out to God for deliverance. And the story introduces us, introduces us to this woman who is judging Israel in the sense that we normally think of. She really is a judge like we think of a judge. Uh, she's called a prophetess. She's actually not called a judge. She's called a prophetess. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel would come to her for judgment. There are problems with identifying Deborah as a judge. Remember, the term judge in this book is someone who is raised up by God to mightily deliver his people from an enemy. So in the story, it's actually Barak, not Deborah, who leads the armies into battle and delivers the people. And that's why in 1 Samuel 12, as well as the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, it's Barak's name that is remembered as the hero alongside the other judges. It was into Barak's hand that the Lord said he would deliver the army of Jabin. But the, ta- the passage does refer to Deborah as a prophetess, and that's substantial. Because it meant that this woman had a responsibility even greater than those judges who was raised up. She spoke for the Lord. She represented the Lord to his people. Uh, Her judging was part of her role as a prophetess rather than as a deliverer. Well, I won't continue going through all the judges. Let me just mention the, the two most famous, Gideon and Samson. Uh, Gideon, also called Jeroboam. He was a reluctant judge, to say the least. 
Uh, He was raised up by God to deliver his people from the Midianites. And among the most memorable stories in the whole book of Judges is Gideon's use of the woolen fleece to test God, right? God, are you really speaking to me? Or there's also the account of him defeating the Midianites with 300 men with torches and empty jars and trumpets. The problem is, after Gideon wonderfully uh, saves God's people, the rest of his life is not so heroic. Gideon dishonored God by setting himself up as a ruler, very similar to the rulers of the Canaanites. He took for himself a large harem, fathered 70 sons and assumedly many, many daughters. He took a Canaanite concubine to himself. The evil life of his son Abimelech speaks to the wickedness of Gideon's own life before he died. He was not a good ruler. And then there was Samson. Perhaps the most famous of the judges, the Nazarite Samson was raised up by God to save his people from the Philistines. And just as Israel's continuation to adopt pagan practices and pagan beliefs led to God removing his blessing from them, So Samson's story is one in which he's constantly being tempted to get attached to foreign pagan women. And each time he would get attached to these pagan women, the blessing of God would be removed from him. There's a very interesting way in which Samson's life is a picture of the nation of Israel as a whole. Um, Next time you read the story of Samson, read it that way. Think about Samson as a real historical person, but in God's providence, his life is a picture of what's been happening to Israel as a whole. Samson's story ends in that remarkable act in which he returns to the Lord. He receives that last blessing of strength in which he brought down the whole temple and the pillars upon the Philistines at the expense of his life. So hopefully all of those things are at least a reminder to you about the book of Judges, what the book of Judges is about, the sense of it, the feel of it. Now let me close with the lessons that we should draw from the book of Judges for our time today. Because the truth is, there is much in this book that present day Christians need to take note of. Just as Israel was Canaanized in Canaan, We're seeing Christianity secularized today. If we are truthful with ourselves, we recognize that we have the same tendency towards compromising God's commands and accommodating the ways of the world. It's very apparent in the book of Judges, and it's very apparent in our own lives. So I'm just going to mention, I don't have time to elaborate on them. I'm just going to mention briefly six lessons from the book of Judges for us. Take these lessons home, flesh them out more deeply with your family or in conversation with other people, and see if you can figure out how to apply them well in your own life. So here they are. Number one, we learn that we are not to compromise on God's call to holiness. We are not to compromise on God's call to holiness. Israel's failure to drive the Canaanites out of their land led to their downfall. And our failure to wage war against any and all the sin in our lives can be ours. God called Israel to cleanse the land, but Israel only pursued a partial cleansing. When God calls us to be holy... He doesn't call us to be partially holy. He doesn't say, stop lying, but keep lusting. 
lose your gluttony, but keep your greed. No, God calls his people through faith in Jesus Christ to love all that is good and to pursue all that is good and to hate all that is evil and to cast away all that is evil. The call to be holy is a call to be holy as God is holy, not settling for half measures, not settling for half-hearted striving. Israel only partly purified the land, and it led to their downfall. Second, our lives and our churches must be devoted to following the revealed word of God. We must not be a people who do what is right in our own eyes, but who do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. We must not create our own moral compasses. We must not buy into the follow your own heart mantra. There is one true lighthouse that can guide us in the way that is safe and leads to blessedness, and it is the word of God. We must cherish God's word, trust God's word, treasure it, know it more deeply than any other book. It was the loss of the word of God that caused so much trouble for Israel. Third, we must be careful to pass the truths of God to the generation that comes after us. We must be faithful to pass the truths of God to the generation that comes after us. We must not assume that our children will get what they need from a Sunday school class that they attend once a week. And how thankful we are for our Sunday school classes. But we must love God ourselves. We must cherish our own time with God. And then we must overflow into the lives of our children. We should be regularly talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and and the truths of God as we sit down with them for dinner or when we're riding down the road in the car or wherever we are, whatever we're doing. The things of God should be on our lips. Certainly, we should be having regular spiritual conversations with our children or our grandchildren, gauging where they are, answering their questions, pointing them to Christ. A fourth lesson for us from the book of Judges. We should be careful not to call out on God only in times of distress. Only in times of distress. Rather, walking with God should characterize our daily lives. The story of Judges is a people who only call on God in the valleys, but they forget Him when they're on the mountains. But you see, we need God just as much when things are going well as as we do when things are going badly. Indeed, we are often far more humble and tender when we're in the valley. Sometimes it's when we're on the mountain that we need Him the most to save us from pride or worldliness. Let our whole lives be Godward lives, lives of communion with God filled with sweet times of prayer Let us not be people who simply call out on God in emergencies. Number five. Number five. We must be careful not to incorporate the world's beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors into our worship of God. We must be careful not to incorporate the world's beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors into the worship of God. All around us, we see churches who approach worship with questions like these. What will draw people? What do people enjoy 
What's your favorite kind of worship? These kinds of questions are open invitations for our worship to be shaped by the world rather than to be shaped by the word. Our preferences and our opinions are not what matter when we are seeking to give worship to God. What matters is, what does He want? What does He prefer? What does He call out for? And so we need to be careful to offer to God the kind of worship that pleases Him. Sincere, heartfelt, humble, reverent, grateful, truth-saturated, word-filled worship. By the way, you will find that that kind of worship is countercultural. I hope you notice that worship here at Mount Hermon, it doesn't fit the world's love for all things flashy, all things glitzy, right? There's not a lot of glam in worship here at our church. But this kind of worship will do us ultimately the most good. God blesses those who trust him enough to obey him. Well, finally, our sixth lesson from the book of Judges. Let us stand in awe of the amazing grace displayed in our Lord that he did not utterly destroy Israel when she so deserved it. There are so many times in the book of Judges when we would have just let the people perish their being so wicked. I think it's hard to read the book of Judges without thinking at times, why doesn't God just wipe these people out? They are so messed up but instead the Lord remained faithful despite Israel's unfaithfulness he always kept for himself a remnant in Israel that was true to him he would not let the nation utterly forsake him because through this nation he was going to bring about the Messiah who would become the savior of the world and so the book of Judges is a book of God's patience a book of God's long-suffering A book of God's endurance. Friends, our sins may be great, but God's grace is greater still. His patience is amazing. Let us therefore entrust ourselves to God's mercy. Let us look to Jesus alone for our salvation. And in the joy of that sweet salvation, let us seek to obey God with all of our hearts. Let us not be a people who do what is right in our own eyes. Let us do a people. Let us be a people who are having our eyes reshaped by God so that we can see as God sees, think as God thinks, and act as God would have us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.